Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I'm Daniel Binkard here with my co-host Alex Helmbrecht. We're in a little bit of a different location today. My uh, studio is being worked on a little bit, so we moved over to Alex's office for today's podcast. We've got with us Mike Lighty, a professor in the geosciences program. Mike, great to have you here, and thanks for coming in. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Perfect. First question for you, uh, your background. How'd you get into um, what you do here in the geosciences? How'd you end up at, at Shadron State? Well, that's a that's a big question. Um, I uh, yeah, I got I got here because I'd, I've been familiar with this area most of my life, and um, I knew that this was a place for um, well paleontology. I knew that fossils had been found in this area for many years, last hundred and fifty years, and um, uh, when I learned that, it became fascinating to me. But I started out. I grew up in North Dakota. Um, my not. And I went to college there, and I studied in a at Minot State, which is a college a lot like Shadron State, a very familiar size and um, small classes and that kind of thing. So I got to got to appreciate that kind of a that kind of a setting there. But I uh, I guess I always wanted to go into science when I was a kid. Yeah, I wasn't sure what. I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed. Um, Taking things apart and putting them back together, you know. So, and so my my dad was a auto mechanic. Well, he was a, a high school teacher. He taught the shop class and auto repair. Um, and he he taught me that first of all, don't ever pay anybody to fix anything. You can do it yourself. Yeah. Just figure it out. Take it apart. Put it back together. You could do those with cars back then. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that was kind of like my my beginning. So he told me he taught me not to be afraid of of Taking things apart, I usually did, broke them anyway. But uh, but you learn about them and you can understand how things work. And it's just pieces, it's stuff that's put together, and somebody designed it. And yeah, and you know, I I guess I could have been an engineer too. But I liked the outdoors, and that was the other part of my upbringing that made me uh, get into geoscience. I didn't didn't think much about geoscience when I was in in school. Um, uh, in fact, I had, I had teachers who turned me off on it. You know, eighth grade, eighth grade physical science teacher was abysmal, and I, uh, uh, you know, but rather than you know that being the example of what science was, it was my example of what people can do to science and just say, right. this guy does, this guy isn't into it. Um, and I was a lot more into it than he was, and so I, you know, kind of stayed with it and um, thought that, um, you know. There'd be some some aspect of of science that would interest me. When I went to college, um, I liked geography. I took geography classes, and um, the uh, geography seemed to me like being, huh, that's kind of cool. I wonder what makes it work. Right. Geographers just seem to scratch the surface, literally, and uh, don't go down to what makes it work. And I wanted to know more about it. And I took my first uh, earth science. Uh, physical geology class, and we did field trips, and we got to go out outside and camp and spend weekends in the field and and hang out with people who had uh, similar interests, and that was the thing that really hooked it for me is uh, doing science outdoors, yeah. enjoying the fresh air, going on long hikes, and um, and learning something pretty cool, and that was the. Um, then I decided at that point I was going to. That was going to be my, my, my calling. Well, then again, I had a 
teacher who wasn't particularly inspired by paleontology. Um, he did a decent job of it, but um, the uh, paleontology wasn't my interest either when I was in college. It was the, uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to go into. I thought I, maybe it could have been geophysics because I enjoyed physics, but there uh, was a, uh, wasn't until after I graduated. Uh, so oil and gas industry has employed geologists for forever. Right. Right. And that was kind of the thing that, um, in North Dakota, uh, oil and gas was a big deal. And so I, I was employed instantly when I graduated in, in oil and gas as a mudlogger. And, um, that is, uh, this what kept me, kept me going for a few years. And then I had the opportunity or I stumbled upon a excavation by paleontologists at the Science Museum of Minnesota in Western North Dakota. And they were excavating, uh, crocodiles, campsosaurs, um, mammals that look like nothing we have today. Yeah. And the larger, the small kind. Well, they're pretty small back okay. then. They're, uh, in the Paleocene, they're um, okay. just after the age of dinosaurs, and so the mammals are pretty small. Uh, <clears throat> but the but the crocodiles, there were seventeen foot crocodiles out there, and um, so they were impressive. And you know, I, we don't have crocodiles in North Dakota anymore, <laughs> uh, and so that also something else about the uh, the uh, strangeness of it all. You know, this place right here, where I'm standing, was very different in the past. And um, that's, that also opened my mind to the kind of things you can discover about a place you live and how things change so drastically in a short period of time. All right. And um, so here I am, I got a job in oil, in the oil industry and I really want to do paleontology. It's kind of like, um, you can't do both. But I really, what I really wanted to do, I really did. So I quit the oil and gas industry, decided to go into graduate school, and ended up going to the University of Nebraska and studied with Mike Voorhees there and looked at the, um, the mammals. Um, I studied the fossil mammals in uh, the Lake McConaughey area. And that was my master's thesis, and that was a that was a lot of fun. And so I got to do the things I enjoyed doing, work out in the field um, in the summertime, and um, discover discover stuff out there, um, put together the history of the past, recorded piecemeal by the stuff that's left behind. Yeah, <clears throat> that was um, that was a good experience. And working with my fellow grad students in Lincoln was uh, was really a kind of like a it was a high point in my life for that for that time because it was really everybody is excited about uh, their their science. Oh, I imagine so. And everybody's out doing some kind of study, all different on some aspect of it. And so it was um, it was good a good uh, motivational atmosphere to hang out in. And did you do your doctoral work at UNL too? I did not. No, I went straight though into my my doctorate doctorate program at the University of Wyoming. And um, so in in Nebraska, I worked on Miocene animals. They were ten to twenty million years old. And then when I went to Wyoming, I w went back to my roots, sort of on the Paleocene, um, and 
the uh, 60 million year old animals in the Bighorn Basin. And so I went from rhinos and camels and horses and things you could recognize down to these little bitty things that look, you know, like shrews and hedgehogs and squirrels. And they're kind of, kind of small and um, very different. Oh, yeah. But the, the age, the time of, time in North America in the years after the dinosaurs went extinct, the dinosaurs had taken over the, the, you know, planet for 180 million years and now they're gone and all these little crawlers that are running around underground literally out of the way of the dinosaurs now found themselves in charge and so there was a flourish of evolution in the Paleocene that was um, dominated by these small mammals that's what's that's what's exciting about that time is that the mammals take off and they uh, oh yeah they become this um Kind of a new phase in, in life on Earth. And so, well, so, so when you're out for a hike, and I guess even in the hills south of campus, um, you know, obviously, you know what to look for. But, but what are some of the, what are some of the, I guess, the interesting or the cool things that you've found in our region or even on campus? Because I, I remember I talked to you maybe a couple of years ago, you found like an, an Oreodont. I, I might be mispronouncing that, but. Um, so there's certainly some things, there's some old critters even on our campus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there are oridons. There are oridons everywhere. Um, uh, and so the, um, yeah, when I first came here, it was 1996 when I first started here, and um, I had I had a student at that time, um, Ed Welch, actually a couple of years after I'd been here, he went out, he lived on campus, and he went out in the evenings to roam around the hills, and he found fossils, and he brought them in. Look what I found. And he ended up having having a huge number of fossils on campus. So I got interested in those. We formalized those, um, and um, he eventually went on to write a master's thesis on the fossils on, on campus hmm. at, at the South Dakota School of Mines. And... Um, and so we've had these we've had these fossil localities that have been known. And these are these were not known. These were known before Ed. Uh, um, Morris Skinner came through here in the 1960s and and had uh, discovered fossils on campus. And you know wherever you have wherever you have badlands, where you have rocks eroded into gully and by gullies, yeah, um, that is going to expose the bedrock and in these rocks they tend to have fossils in them so so what's the t- primary uh, time period that uh, we find fossils around here well the fossils on campus uh, most of the area including toadstool park or oligocene okay uh late eocene oligocene so they're they're 40 of uh, 42 million years to to miocene in the 20s okay and then um as farther south you go the younger the rocks are uh, but 30 million year old, years old is, is the general age of the fossils on campus. Okay. And so, so we had, um, I've had several students through the years that have, um, have taken the fossil localities on campus as a, a starting point for senior theses and general research. Well, that's great to have this uh, learning library mm-hmm. or learning laboratory right in our backyard. Yeah, I, it really is. And I'm, I'm thinking about how many colleges in the world have uh, these fossils, fossils yeah. on campus. Yeah. 
or even rocks that are worth looking for fossils. Yeah. And not many. What, uh, what are some of the things that you found? Well, you, you can't walk without hitting an oreodont, right? They're all over. It must have been an amazing time with oreodonts running around like sheep on the landscape. And so those are basically like the domestic sheep? They're, they look a lot like sheep. Okay. They're about the size of sheep. Uh, they have um, primitive, more primitive teeth, but they were prim teeth that are adapted for grazing or eating soft vegetation. Um, and so then we, we, see, um, we see rhinos. We see a couple species of rhinos. And we see, um, we see camels. And there's a pretty wide diversity of camels in, these, in the rocks we have around here. Um, people don't think of camels as being a North American animal, but they really are. They, they started here and mm -hmm. they, they branched out into their various size groups and adaptations. And then they eventually made it over into Asia and um, Africa. And that's where they live today uh, as refugia, but they went extinct in their homeland. And that's, uh, right. that's here. But... Um, Besides, uh, besides camels, well, horses, of course, um, there was a time when there were probably six or seven different species of horses um, running around uh, the Great Plains. And, um, you know, how do they tell each other apart? Well, obviously, they had different colors, they had different calls, they had different behaviors that we sure. don't know about. Opens up all kinds of interesting ecological questions. Yeah. Um, of course, carnivores. Um, there's um, dogs and cats, uh, wolf-like animals, saber-tooth cats, and large and small, and um, uh, weasels, insectivores, um, rodents. Um, large diversity of rodents are found, and rabbits, of course. Hmm. That's great variety. And you'd recognize most of these animals you know, 30 million years ago. Right. You'd say a little bit funny looking. Rabbits would be small and I'm sure the animals would have outward appearances we don't can't imagine, but um, hmm. yeah, at least r roughly speaking, uh, similar to what we know today. Yeah, certainly <clears throat> recognize the the saber tooth. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you know you want to <laughs> run away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were pretty large, weren't they? Yeah. Yep. So, Mike, uh, changing gears on that, you've got I understand an upcoming presentation at the Nebraska Academy of Sciences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, in fact, that um, is a branch of what we were just talking about, fossils okay. on campus, because um, there is um, the presentation is describing a fossil wolf that we found on campus and um, some other fossils related to it. And um, Steve Welch, who is um, working on a master's degree here, um, has uh, had discovered that about a year ago in one of the canyons on campus. Nice. Just just outside of, um, well, just off the trails up there. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he's digging in the the uh, relatively soft, unconsolidated uh, gravelly fill. It's definitely not bedrock. It's some very much younger stuff. It's sort of clinging to the side of, the, of these canyons. And... Um, we're interested in from that perspective, you know, what is this? How old is this? How, how long have these canyons been here? And they keep filling in and re getting recut. So the Pine Ridge really has this dynamic history we're still trying to figure out. So that's kind of, the, kind of like the foundation of, you know, why we're collecting fossils in the first place is because the rocks that the fossils were found in 
are deposited in the topography, and then the topography keeps changing, and the Pine Ridge keeps um, eroding away, but never quite eroding away. Yeah. And so we, uh, he found he found the wolf. He found one of the jaws. We went out there and poked out a little bit and found the other jaw, and there are two beautiful pristine lower jaws. Um, and then we found pieces of a turtle and um, uh, part of a long bone that had, had broken off. And so kind of a scrappy bunch of stuff, but definitely a identifiable bone there. Yeah, and okay. he found some more stuff near Briggs Pond also that is uh, we thought was similar um, and probably related to the same fill. We nice. found that was yeah. not correct. <laughs> Well, still, I mean, there's going to be some swings and misses probably yeah. when you're digging. Well, yeah, sure. You take a, you, you make a hypothesis about something and then you test it and, and oop, didn't work. So, so the hypothesis was that there's a, there's a canyons here that were cut and they're filled up by this, uh, it looks like uh, landslide deposits, basically. Hmm. It's not, not stream, not organized stream deposits or anything. And then, so the fossils there are just kind of like happen to be caught in that. And so now we can use them as the indicator of, what happened. And the other part, the other story of that is the bone was in good enough shape. We were able to get a radiocarbon date on it at uh, 700, 700 years, approximately. All right. So that's relatively new in that's your line of work. historical. Just yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> that is, um, yep. And so you can actually talk about, you know, what our ancestors were doing in Europe at the time. Uh, and that's definitely a very young day. We never expected anything that young, considering the fact that this canyon was cut and then filled up and then cut again after that. And when you say a canyon is cut, what what do you mean by that? Well, so we have these gullies. Maybe they're gullies. They're they're small canyons, but they're um, places that a stream has flowed through and and removed the material and so left a steep sided uh, canyon there. And so um, streams go through, they run off the Pine Ridge, they got a lot of gradient, and they remove the sand and gravel, carry it down to town. And then um, climate changes or something happens, and then uh, sand and gravel landslide deposits start filling the stuff in again, and it vegetates over. And then something happens again, and cut canyons cut through. So it's a cut and fill. The landscape is changing constantly. Yeah. So um, water and time. Water and time, yep. yeah. It's funny. It's not all it seems to take. <laughs> <laughs> you almost want to put a camera up there and do the, do the stop motion video. Oh, yeah, the extreme and watch time it lapse. Yeah. If you could put a camera up for a thousand years, you'd yeah. see an amazing amount of oh, absolutely. change. Yeah, that would be something. Yeah. Um, now, Mike, most people may not know, but uh, – you're currently your office and in, in where you teach, uh, primarily when you're not outside, is the math science building. Well, that's going through a, a renovation, and then there's going to be an addition and um, mm -hmm. added on to that as well. And so, I believe starting next academic year in the fall, the math science building is going to be closed. And so, um, all of those classes need to go somewhere. Your offices need to go somewhere. So. Um, do you, do you know where you're going to be teaching next year or where your offices are going to be located? My office will be in uh, room 128, Brooks Hall. And so that's the uh, that's where I, I'm going to be sitting. Uh, we've got a row of, of former dormitory rooms upstairs in that building that are going to be used for storage of all the 
rocks and fossils and stuff that were taken out of the science building. Because you'd need to take those out of the, the Cook Museum too, right? And the stuff that's on exhibit needs to be moved. And yeah. that's going to be, uh, we're having a, we're having a, a last bash party, we're calling it, out with the old on April 3rd, Friday, uh, which is uh, going to be a building open house. going to be uh, museum tours, planetarium tours. Tony Tibbetts is going to have um, her students in there doing planetarium tours. We're going to have uh, Matt Brust showing his, his insect collection and Steve Rolfsmeyer showing the herbarium all of which is going to be packed up and moved the week after that. So uh, we're going to, so we're inviting people out to come in. And is that all day? On, no, it's 7, 7 to 9 p.m. Okay. Okay. One Correct. last chance to get the planetarium show and uh, see yep. the rocks before they get uh, changed over in the new location. Yeah. And, uh, what would it be, a year and a half, two years? <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. At least probably two years before the museum's back in order. The uh, Triceratops... <clears throat> The mounted skull we call Sarah is going to be moving over to the Sandoz Center, and it's going to be in the atrium, in the area behind the fence. And so that's that's one of the exhibits, and we have yeah. places for a few other things that are going around, library and Good. student center. Uh, but most of the stuff will be packed up, put away, and then we have to come up with new exhibits when we, when we get in the new space. And that, so the, the, uh, you're referencing the, the Eleanor Barbara Cook Museum, who was, uh, one of, well, I don't think she was original to the college, but very early on a, a teacher here. Yeah. And, um, much of that collection is, is, was it her own items or? Yep. Okay. Yep. So the Eleanor Barbara Cook collection, um, comprises her teaching specimens and she had specimens. So her father was, uh, E.H. Barbour, who founded the University of Nebraska State Museum. So he'd been in Lincoln for quite a few years. Um, and she got a job here in 1924. She may have been here earlier in 23 um, uh, uh, with her husband um, teaching classes, Harold Cook. And so they, um, she was here and brought her specimens with her. And um, the, the word is that she you know, asked her father for help in putting together stuff she could use in the classroom. And so he had connections all over the world in museums. And so they um, donated things that they had that were, they were not using or they had duplicates of and gave them to, to her. And so we have a beautiful collection of minerals and rocks that were um, her personal things. And so even though some of them aren't really the most wonderful things they have her number on them and so i kind of hold those in a special place yeah, right sure. they're kind of using a rock that's been in the collection for 100 years even though i just did that last week i had a fossil leaf and i said hey this is eleanor's, eleanor's leaf yeah and so there's a there's a nice connection with the past there and so those are being um those are being saved we're going to probably put those out as a major part of the exhibit in the, the new space we'll have a lot more exhibit space than we have now Oh, that's going to be good. Uh, from what I saw in the most recent plans, it looks like it'll be a <clears throat> pretty prime location along with the herbarium. It will. So yeah. that'll be nice to see when it's all done. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. All the west wing that has um, storage and mechanical room in now will be museum space. And so the herbarium will be across the way from the, from the geology museum. And um, we're looking forward to uh, filling that. It's 
kind of a daunting task thinking about all the space we need to fill, but it'll be a great opportunity. Oh, definitely. So, Mike, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what your teaching philosophy is. You've been uh, honored uh, with the uh, college's Teaching Excellence Award uh, and honored uh, with the Nebraska State College System's uh, honor, too. Um, tell us a little bit about how you approach teaching. Well, I mean, I, what what showed up in the award and, and was was uh, named as, you know, the the reason I got the award was high impact practices. And that was kind of like the buzzword back then, probably still yeah. is. High impact means that you get the students' attention and they get they enjoy doing what they're doing. Um, and they take something away from that experience. And so they've learned. Um, and, um, you know, that's even more relevant today when everything's electronic and everything's connected. How do you surpass that? How do you get above the fact that information is instantly available? Well, you put people in the, in a setting where they are confronted with solving a problem, and they have to figure it out from the pieces of you know pieces of the world around them, and that's uh, you know that's high impact teaching. And so you can't teach geoscience without high impact teaching. It's just basically sure. if it's on paper, you're not you're not really teaching it. They're not really learning it. So I, I guess that's the that's the thing. Anybody who's ever taught geoscience is going to teach high impact. That's just part of the gig. Part of it, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. it's a it seems to be the only thing that works. <laughs> you got to get your hands dirty. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mike, can you give us a, a, an elevator speech or, or a short r rationale for why the world needs geoscientists? And then, what are some of the jobs that your graduates are going into? Yeah. So. So my elevator speech for a very short building is, is the, uh, if you enjoy living on Earth, you need geoscientists. That works. That because <laughs> because name something that you use that you you can you appreciate you know, like resources, uh, water, energy, clean air, um, farmland, food, all that stuff. There's a geoscience approach behind it somewhere. And probably not very far behind it. That's that's the thing that, um, you know, it, it pays the bills. It it gets the food on the table. Uh, it makes us happy. Um, it gives us uh, high quality of life. It maintains our health. You know, it's, it's part of part of human health is having good nutrition and, and good um, resources and you know, all the things we take take for granted as part of the part of the modern technological world. So that's. Um, at the root of at the root of almost everything we we need, the things students my students go into um, are related to those resources, and so a lot of people get jobs in water resources. We have several students working in natural resource districts around Nebraska, um, who are maintaining water quality um, in various various ways. We have um, people working in private consulting in um, environmental fields are looking for ways to mitigate water quality issues mostly um, and um, dealing with both contamination and, and supply of, of water. Uh, we have quite a few people. Uh, I could name several students who are working in the oil, oil and gas industry. And, you know, the, the, the push is toward green energy and, and away from fossil fuels, but this is the economy that runs on fossil fuels still. 
Right. And so we still need people to go into oil and gas. This is not a, it's not a dead end field. Um, and eventually people who work in oil and gas work for companies like Shell and Mobile, Exxon and Mobile are going to be figuring out ways to diversify and get into green energy too. And so those will be things for, um, for the future. Um, let's see what else. I have a student working in a, working for a, a windmill company, uh, the old fashioned uh, water pumping windmill. Yeah. And they're another industry that's old fashioned, but diversifying into modern fields as well. Um, so there's lots of, lots of, lots of industries out there, private, private and public that are, um, employing geoscientists. And I haven't said anything about paleontology because, you know, being, uh, having grown up in paleontology as the thing that really got me started, realizing that there's few jobs in the field. And if you're going to make it in paleontology, you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to claw your way to the top and fight your way through the competition in order to do it. And some people are willing to do that. Some people are not. And, my job, I'm not here as a paleontologist, I'm here as a generalist, right? And I teach all the geoscience courses. Um, and, and so that's why I'm able to do what I can right. here. Uh, research is a very tiny part of my job. And, you know, I, I deal with water resources and, and structural and sedimentology and, and volcanoes and a whole bit because that's what I have to do. Yeah. So um, the geoscience program here is kind of unique. We have um, almost completely online, except for the the summer field portion. So how does all that work, especially considering the need for that high-impact learning practice? Yeah, well, you mentioned field camp. That's it. That's the high-impact learning that makes it possible. And, you know, if you want to say, you could say this is not an online program because it has field camp in it. Well, the other criticism is you can't do an online geoscience. I have to agree with that. You can't do online geoscience um, and make it um, uh, give students what they really need to be able to recognize the problems and solve problems when they get out of, in the real real world. Well, maybe you could do it. Um, for someone who really has the motivation right. and wants to learn uh, about how to solve problems in the field, um, they probably could do it, and certainly there are there are ways to um, there are data sets involving um, uh, uh, field data that somebody else has collected that need to be analyzed. I'm thinking maybe someone who was handicapped, for example, and couldn't get couldn't actually physically get out in the field. I mean, there's right. a possibility that person would be able to solve some problems because we have so much data out there. There's so many different different areas. Um, where our data has been collected and has just accumulated and is available on the internet, uh, there is, um, there's more problems to solve than there are people to solve them. And so that's one of the ways I say that um, hypothetically you could do a ge- be a geoscientist and access these data sets. Having said that, somebody has to need to collect the data in the field, right? We yeah. have to have somebody going out there and actually do that field work. And so with the combination of online classes and then summer for field camp, um, we take all of our students, not just the online students, face-to-face and online. They meet each other, and I get to meet them, and then they, um, they're they faced with increasingly difficult problems in the field. 
go out and solve those, and then they feel good about what they've accomplished, and then we move on to the next next year in the classroom. So is that that be uh, every summer throughout their say four years uh, in the program? They yes. Up? Okay. Field field camp is three years. Okay. Two two credits per two weeks, two credits each time, and then they have six weeks of field camp at the end. Most colleges have a six-week capstone field camp, or at the end of their career, between their junior and senior year, they go out in the field for six weeks, and then they're confronted with all these problems. Here, you've had this, you've read about this, now figure it out. Yeah. I think it's a little unfair. I mean, that's what that's field camp I took when I was an undergraduate. But it's unfair to throw students in that setting without having prepared them. Yeah. Um, so you still have to have field preparation. Ours, our field camp has a different approach, is that field preparation, sometimes the only experience they get in the field is in field camp, right? Because they start out as freshmen. And they read about, read about rocks in the field, and next May they're out in the field looking at them. And that's the... Um, and we, we help them a little bit more. We hold their hands a little bit more and yeah. ease them into that. Plus, our field camp is like a one-room schoolhouse in that the students who have been there for three years can help the students who are just starting out. Oh, that's good. And that is, I think, one of the advantages. And it's also the advantage of having small classes and having people from at different levels together. It's um, They can help teach each other a little bit. Definitely. Sounds like a great learning environment with some community aspects to it mixed in there, too. It is, yeah. And um, field camp has really, really done, uh, does great things for the interaction, I think, in my classes. Because once a student has been in the field, and then they post an online assignment, I see their face, right? I know, Mm -hmm. I can expect with this person, I can hear what this person is saying, I can see where they're struggling, and I can see the their particular approach to the problem because I've worked with them in the field on that. It's amazing what you can do in two weeks, but yeah. it's intensive 24 hours a day sitting there with the students. I bet. Mike, what are some of your interests uh, outside of work? Well, my my outside interests, so Nancy and I bought a, bought a house here um, when we first moved to town, and we've been We've been fixing up the house, and so uh, I like to say all my ex- all my extra time is spent fixing fences. <laughs> and it's kind of like the uh, it, it takes takes a lot of time. You know, we're fixing fences, we sure. gather firewood, and we go out places and collect firewood on weekends. But being outdoors and um, being able to um, keep in shape by doing work on the, on the ranch is 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 good. Yeah. That's what we enjoy doing, and. I enjoy bike riding as well, and um, kind of stuff. Don't get as much time as we wish we could do, but um, uh, going biking and hiking and camping and exploring the wilderness is it's a great area. Real, for it. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah, we're kind of in the middle of a lot of things here. Mm-hmm. We're close, close by. Nice. Yeah. So, Mike, we've come to the end for our uh, quick-hitting questions for you to wrap things up. First question, uh, a favorite book or author? Well, uh, I guess <clears throat> I guess Neil deGrasse Tyson is kind of like the, my hero right now. I mean, uh, uh, Carl Sagan used to be, Al, uh, Asimov used to be a favorite yeah. of mine when I was a kid. Um, um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould also... 
these are all people who who have were scientists, right? And they all um, do do their best explaining science to the public, and and their what I think they do is really important because people need to understand science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because science is telling them what to do all the time. You know, it's saying you got to cut down your fossil fuels. You're going to have do this and do that, and making people a little bit self-conscious about their behaviors and why why do we do that? Why why do we think it's important? So, yeah. so Neil deGrasse Tyson is a great explainer, and he has he has a big following, and he's very personable and doesn't mind. You know, going on national talk shows and yeah, and helping sure spread that message. Mike, what's one of the one of the more satisfying digs that you've been a part of? Well, I, I guess probably. Um, I mean, starting out when you're when you're a youngster in your twenties, uh, the experiences are more intense, right? And going out in the field and collecting uh, collecting these big crocodiles. That was pretty intense. And that yeah, would be cool. And being able to watch them appear in the museum a few years later, you know, right. and it's kind of kind of cool to be able to do that. So that was a that was a good, great learning experience. And in fact, the uh, you know the fossils we have in the collection here, the ones you don't see, the ones in the behind the scenes are really. I, I can imagine all the work that went into the collecting those through the years, um, um, mostly by, by not me, other people, and um, those are um, those are really um, personal experiences and better than to all those. Those are really kind of great. It's always a your your heart speeds up a little bit once you see a yeah a, f- a fossil in the ground. I bet. How many states have you been to? Oh, I not all of them. I guess maybe forty. <laughs> Not bad, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. I've been in all except all the western states except for Alaska and Hawaii, and I've I've missed most of the deep south, uh, going from Alabama, Mississippi up through. Uh, well, I guess I've been in North Carolina, but that's a good number. Yeah. How many times have you been to the top of Sea Hill? You're probably going to have to guess. <laughs> Yeah, so I've been there, I know, three or four times a year, um, 50 to 100 times. That's a good number. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right, last one for you. What is a word that comes to your mind when you think of Shadron State? I think of quality. I think of um, I think of the quality we have If here. Um, the faculty are amazing, and we teach amazing students. Yeah. Uh, and we see that. We see these 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 light bulbs shine, um, come alive, and students who really have the motivation, um, the background, and the, I guess the courage to, um, to learn stuff that's hard to learn. Yeah, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of a lot of motivation. Uh, it really pays off, and I've seen every faculty member I've talked to on campus has that. Understanding that, yeah, I know those students. Here they are, and I'm just trying to get these guys to wake up. And when they wake up, then it's they're on their own. Yeah, I think of I think of my students as Energizer bunnies. Sometimes you you put the batteries in them, and they go go off, and they're off doing great stuff. Yeah. And some of them don't, but um, there's a we 
there's a lot of positive that goes on here. Yeah, we right. got plenty of success stories. That's yep. for sure. Yep. All right. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on the show with us. We really appreciate having you here. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Yep. Thank thanks. you. Thanks.